Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Not multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Good morning, I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, and welcome to Open Your Eyes Radio. Please listen as I discuss the newest information in the world of health, nutrition, and sports every Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Central Time on AM 1280 The Patriot. Also, please share your thoughts by emailing me at drkerrygelb at gmail.com. That's D-R-K-E-R-R-Y-G-E-L-B at gmail.com. Almost everyone tries to lose weight, but almost no one is successful, according to the CDC. The average weight of a U.S. female is now 166 pounds, and the same weight as the average man in the 1960s. The average man now weighs just under 200 pounds. Why are Americans gaining so much weight? And why do diets fail 98% of the time? And why do we keep eating and eating and eating, and we never seem to be full or satisfied? Today's guest, Dr. Ted Naiman, MD, has given this topic much thought. Dr. Naiman is a board-certified family medicine physician in Seattle. His personal research and medical practice are focused on the practical implementation of diet and exercise for health optimization. He is the author of The PE Diet. Look for him on social media, at Ted Naiman, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Ted, thank you for joining me today. Why are we always hungry? And if we're always hungry, how could we ever lose weight? Well, uh, hi, Dr. Gelb. Nice to talk to you. And the reason that we're always hungry is because we have food today that has lots of calories, but not very much satiety per calorie. And that's the easy answer. You know, we think about food and I know a lot of people, they, they, they do pretty good during the day. But at the end of the day, at night, they're starving. And then they open up the refrigerator and the, the thing of ice cream comes out and they eat half the ice cream container. Why do people get so hungry at night? Well, okay, you eat for two reasons. First of all, you have to ingest protein and nutrients and things your body needs. You need protein, vitamins, minerals, calories. But then we choose foods because we like the way certain things taste and certain things are more palatable and uh, have higher hedonic value, meaning we really uh, like them because they're tasty. And so what happens is if you don't eat all the protein and micronutrients you need earlier in the day, 
then you're going to be really hungry because you just absolutely have to eat that stuff every day to be alive. And then when you do go to eat, the hungrier you are, the more likely you are to choose something just based on how tasty and delicious and palatable it is. So you're going to go straight for that ice cream. Um, and, and this is really why a lot of studies show that if you front load protein earlier in your day, you're literally going to eat more later on. People who eat breakfast and eat protein at breakfast and uh, achieve a certain protein quantity in their first meal of the day uh, literally eat hundreds of calories less later. And it's this is something that's been shown in scientific research. You know, there's been a lot of nutrition experts lately that are saying that we're eating too much protein. Uh, where, where did that come from? And it seems to me, you know, even though I'm an eye doctor, when, you know, when I go to the gym and I eat protein, I do a lot better. Right. I, I don't hear a lot of people saying we're eating too much protein, but, I, but everyone is agreeing that most people are eating enough protein. And it's true that almost everyone's eating uh, the USRDA for protein. And in fact, it's obvious that everyone's eating enough protein to be alive because you're alive. The problem is how many carbs and fats did you have to eat to get that protein. So if you're a you know, hunter-gatherer and you just go out and kill an animal and hunt and gather, the protein percent of these foods is very, very high, and you're gonna achieve this protein at a much lower intake of carbs and fats. But now in the modern food environment, because we've basically watered down all the protein in our foods with refined carbs and refined fats, you know, sugar and flour and oil, the uh, protein dilution is really high. So you're eating as much protein as you were before the obesity epidemic, but you're just eating a couple of hundred extra grams of carbs and fat today. If you look at um, the amount of protein people ate, you know, 60 years ago before the obesity epidemic and now, it's almost identical. There's almost no difference whatsoever. And this is protein leverage. Basically, humans tightly control how much protein they're going to eat because you uh, need a certain amount and you're not going to overeat it because it's very hard to overeat protein. And so what ends up happening is everyone is eating enough protein. You're, you're eating enough protein, I'm eating enough protein, but how many carbs and fats did you have to consume to get that protein? If you're eating high protein percentage foods, you can get by with fewer calories. If you're eating you know, the modern protein dilute uh, food environment, then you might be eating way more carbs and fats than you really need. And for those people that get so hungry at the end of the day, what can they do to prevent it? Like when should they be eating the protein so they're satiated, so they're not starving, you know, uh, eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night? Right, so, so I, what I recommend to everybody is you'll, you'll have an eating window, you know, maybe it's eight hours, maybe it's 12 hours, maybe you're doing a little intermittent fasting, maybe not, but you really wanna bookend that eating window with a very large chunk of protein. You want your first meal of the day, no matter what time it is, to have a lot of protein in it. I would recommend at least 40 grams of protein for most people. And then you want your last meal to have a large amount of protein in it too. And when you bookend these meals at your eating window, starting in with protein, then you're achieving this protein satiety and you're getting enough micronutrients as well because most micronutrients, vitamins, and minerals track along with protein, less so with carbs and fats. So if you're targeting protein at these meals, you're just going to be less hungry and there's a lot lower chance that you're gonna be standing in your pantry at 10 o'clock at night, just like grazing on you know, nuts or crackers or whatever that you know, we've all been there. 
So uh, personally, I think front-loading protein earlier in your day, earlier in your meal, um, that really goes a long way towards people just eating less. We have studies that show that if you drink a, a protein shake, even, you know, for example, you know, 30 minutes before each meal, you're going to eat uh, 300 calories less per day. This is just uh, the way protein leverage and protein satiety works. So my advice is, you know, count how many grams of protein you're eating at these meals and make sure you've hit some sort of target earlier in the day and you just literally won't be as hungry late at night. For people that are uh, having protein shakes or they're having these smoothies and they're adding protein in it, what kind of protein do you think is the best to add into a smoothie? Well, we have studies on muscle protein synthesis and uh, um, <clears throat> we know for a fact that based on digestibility and the amino acid spectrum, that egg and whey are both considered gold standard proteins. These are like 100% absorbable and have the exact perfect amino acid spectrum to create a mammal, basically. So eggs and whey, egg white and whey protein is technically as good as it gets. Um, other protein powders might be a little bit less um, effective when it comes to either digestibility or accessibility or the spread of amino acids. For example, soy protein has a really good complement of amino acids to make a plant um, versus egg or whey has a, the exact complement of amino acids you need to make a mammal. So plant proteins are a little bit inferior. Um, you can make up for that by simply consuming about 20% more of them, and then you'll have extra amino acids, um, and you'll you'll be able to build a mammal with 20% more plant protein than you would have with eggs or whey, for example. And with the whey protein, do you want undenatured or non-denatured versus you know uh, protein that's been heated? Uh, it it doesn't really matter. So in the digestion process, you're breaking all these down into their individual amino acids anyway. So uh, there's not a lot that could happen to it beforehand to really like destroy it or break it. I mean, enough heat would denature the proteins, but um, if you you know most uh, whey powders are processed in a way that it doesn't really degrade the quality of the amino acids you're going to get after digestion. And your favorite type of protein is it fish? Is it meat? Uh, or does it really matter? Well, so I like any kind of properly raised animal protein. And what happens is if you get a, like a wild caught piece of fish or a grass fed uh, steak, an animal that was properly raised and eating what it was supposed to eat, usually the protein's fairly lean. The saturated fat is fairly low. Um, any of these are amazing. I get worried when the whole process of raising animals or producing food ends up diluting protein and adding a lot of fat in. So if you just force feed a pig, for example, you're going to radically dilute the protein content with extra fat. And so now you're getting a lot more fat along for the ride with this protein you're trying to eat. And then um, if you take that um, fattened pig and produce like sausage or something out of it, frequently they'll add more fat into it and the protein percent's even lower um, because it, fat is way cheaper than protein and economically you can make more profit off of these animal products if you dilute the protein out. And so basically if you eat processed meat you've got an artificially fattened animal with dilute protein 
And then you, when you make a hot dog, it's the protein percent might be you know, 15%. It might be really, really low because there's so much fat in there because it's cheaper to manufacture. So what I don't like is these proteins that have basically been diluted by either the way the animal was raised or the way it was processed or the, all these economic forces that basically just drive protein percent lower and lower and lower and lower. Because protein's the most expensive macronutrient. If you price out everything in the grocery store, uh, really, it just goes up with the protein content. Carbs and fats are almost free, and it's all about that protein. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about meat. Uh, the carnivore diet has become something that's been very popular, and I know people that maybe have IBS may benefit from the carnivore diet. What do you think about a carnivore diet and focusing just on one food source? Um, I don't like being that restrictive because it's just not as sustainable as something that's a little broader. Um, I also don't like being that restrictive because you might have some micronutrient deficiencies. Some of my pure carnivore patients have some fairly low folate levels, for example. And I'm not sure what happens if you're uh, uh, you know, a pregnant woman who's on a carnivore diet with low folate levels that can't be optimal. So I have some concerns about anyone who's just restricting down to one single food group. I do like the, the carnivores just for proving that you can live on a diet of pure meat. I mean, this is really good to know. It's very important. So um, I appreciate people on the fringes just proving what's possible, but I don't think that really makes it optimal. So carnivore diet is definitely possible. Uh, is it absolutely optimal? I don't think so because it's so restrictive that a lot of people aren't even gonna try it to begin with. And then a lot more people can't sustain it long-term. And then there are some theoretical nutritional um, issues. Uh, you know, for example, uh, in the plant world, the chlorophyll and all these plant molecules are centered around magnesium. So you get a lot more magnesium automatically when you're eating plant foods versus uh, iron and hemoglobin. That's the primary molecule you're getting in the animal world. So all of my vegan patients are iron deficient. And then all my, Carnivore patients aren't getting enough magnesium. And I'm like, ooh, what if you could sort of combine those two and play it right down the middle? So I, I really do think that um, it's probably better to be a little bit more inclusive and it's certainly easier for most people to sustain. You know, the you talk about vegetarian diets and I think we spoke once and I think you told me at one time you might've been on a vegetarian diet. Is that correct? Uh, correct, yes. I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist and I was... Uh, vegetarian for decades, honestly. And what do you think about being on a vegetarian diet? I know in my neck of the woods, we have a lot of people from India and, you know, for religious reasons, they're vegetarian, but they have very bad cardiovascular disease. Uh, you know, I mean, they're eating, they're not eating meat, but they're also eating a lot of processed foods because there's not a lot to eat. You know, they run out of things to eat, it seems like to me. But what do you think about being a vegan or on a vegetarian diet? How difficult is it? What are the pros and the cons? Well, I think it's possible to be very healthy or very unhealthy on either pure carnivore or pure vegan. And so to me, it's a little bit of a false dichotomy. And that's not really a super helpful lens for looking at diet, in my opinion. Um, also, a lot of vegetarianism is religious in nature, uh, certainly my Seventh-day Adventist 
uh, vegetarian background was religious and a lot of uh, my uh, East Indian patients who are vegetarian, they're doing this for religious reasons. And I don't know if that's the really the best way to pick your diet. Um, I also think that as soon as you're not eating animal foods, it's a lot harder to get protein because the protein percentage of the plant world is just inherently lower than the animal world. So you have to go out of your way to get adequate protein without overeating carbohydrate, for example. It's also harder to get some of these micronutrients and minerals like zinc and iron and B12, of course. So uh, uh, once again, uh, a pure plant diet is possible, but not optimal. It's kind of the same thing I said about the carnivore side. And why do you think, what has happened over the last you know, 50 years, why have Americans gained so much weight? Well, the big thing is we figured out how to cheaply and easily refine carbs and refine fats. So if you suck all the protein and all the fiber and all the water out of any kind of food, you're left with either carbs and fats. And then if you uh, just sort out all the carbs, you've got sugar and flour, refined carbs. If you just siphon off all the fat, you've got basically oil or butter or just pure refined fat. These refined carbs and fats like sugar and flour and oil literally have an infinite shelf life. These things are shelf stable pretty much forever. So the uh, it's so much more profitable than protein. Protein is incredibly expensive because you have uh, refrigeration and spoilage and you have to cook it. And there are all these huge factors when it comes to producing protein and transporting protein and preparing protein. And um, it's way more expensive. But sugar and oil, this stuff can sit on the shelf for literally ever. Your processed foods made out of them is shelf stable for years, maybe decades and the profit margin goes through the roof. Um, the problem with these foods is they're just inherently dehydrated, so the water content's much lower, so you don't get as much weight and volume when you eat them, which is important for satiety. They have usually all the fiber completely stripped out of them, and again, fiber is very important for satiety per calorie. And then the protein is absolute zero, and you really eat until you get enough protein. That's the way the system works. So when you suck all the water and fiber and protein out of food, and you're just left with just pure calories, refined carbs and refined fats, now what you've done is diluted out any sort of nutrition from your food and just dumped in a bunch of calories. Uh, and then that's complicated by the fact that the combination of a high carb, high fat, high energy, energy density together is super tasty and rewarding and hyper palatable and delicious. And that's all of your donuts and your cakes and your cookies and your pies and your muffins and your crackers and your bagels. And these are all, all just, you know, refined carbs and refined fats, especially combined. And we really crave those things because from an evolutionary point of view, we were looking for something that was super high energy density like this, and we could hardly ever find it in our hunter-gatherer environments. But now, you know, we've got Uber Eats, so it's just right there all the time. I mean, if we're taking nutrients out of the food, are we gonna keep eating to try to get those nutrients? Absolutely, so there, there's, there's two reasons why people eat. There's what we call homeostatic eating, which is you're eating because you have to eat because you have to have protein every day. You have to have about 50 grams of protein every day just to be alive. You have to have minerals. You have to have sodium. You have to have potassium. You, you also have to have calories. So you're, you're eating 
homeostatically to replace the things that you lose every day, protein from, you know, skin cells that slough off of your body and things like that, and all these minerals that you lose in sweat and things like this. But then we also eat, the other reason we eat is um, hedonic eating. We eat because it's tasty and it's rewarding and our brains light up and we love it and it's kind of addictive. So when you look at refined carbs and refined fats, that's really driving obesity forward on both of these sides. You know, you need to eat protein and micronutrients, but that food doesn't have any in it. So you're going to eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and try to get them and you're not going to. It's also driving uh, obesity forward because it's so hedonic and delicious and tasty. So you've got this push and pull here of you never get the protein and micronutrients you need, so you have to eat more. And then the refined carbs and refined fats that are high energy density and tasty and delicious are driving obesity because you want to eat them. They're so addictive and they're so yummy. You know, we talked about protein before, about fish uh, as one of the types of protein. Is mercury something that you think about? Is that an issue when we're eating fish? Um, so if you eat smaller fish, mercury gets um, concentrated as you go up the food chain. So small fish, you never have to be worried about mercury. Um, Medium-sized fish, okay, maybe if that was 100% of your diet, you might someday have to worry about it. Really large fish uh, could actually be an issue. So I'm only worried about mercury toxicity when someone's eating a ton of fish and they're eating large predator fish that have bioaccumulated the mercury. You know what I mean? Only when you get up to some giant tuna or swordfish or some giant predator fish at the high end of the chain, are you going to have enough bioaccumulation of heavy metals to have to worry about it? So if you just eat, you know, smaller fish, you basically never have to worry about that. You know, it's interesting because 75% of uh, Americans are overweight, a, a little bit over 40% are obese. Since 1980, you know, uh, 27% of Americans have gained more weight and kids, 47% of our kids are gaining weight. So this weight gain and this obesity is is really going is is going crazy. So when we get back from the break, I want to ask you about some of the medications that are being used now, some of these magic medications and to get your opinion on that. This is Dr. Kerry Gell for Open Your Eyes Radio on AM 1280 The Patriot. MacU Health your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. We're back. This is Dr. Kerry Gell for Open Your Eyes Radio on AM 1280, The Patriot. I'm speaking with the, the very handsome Dr. Ted Naiman, and he's a great. He's agreed to join us today. You could find Dr. Naiman on his website at, doctor, at tednaiman.com, the P-E- uh, dietbook.com, which is an excellent book that I've read uh, a little while ago, uh, proteinpercent.com, satietyscore.com, and on his social media, Ted Naiman at, uh, with, at Twitter and Instagram, YouTube and Facebook at Ted Naiman. So Ted, before the break, I mentioned that we want to talk about some of the new medications. There's the semi-glutide medications are, you know, the big fad right now. You know, I'm an eye doctor, but patients come in, they're on these medications, and I've seen some really unbelievable results on some of these medications. Not everybody, but uh, with a lot of people, I've seen them lose a lot of weight. I've seen their blood tests go from horrible 
to very good because they lost the weight. Look, just losing 20 pounds. So, you know, and then you see, you know, you'll see online some of the scare tactics and side effects from some of these medications. I have not seen that from anybody that had any severe side effects to it, but I'm sure it's possible. But let tell me about the medication, Ozempic, uh, uh, Wagovi, Mongero. Tell, tell me about the medications. What's your opinion? And what have you seen in your patients that have it, that have been using it? Gotcha. Well, okay. Uh, I do like these medications. These are very hot. These are very popular. Uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists, uh, glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists. These, uh, I'll tell you what, before this class of drug, weight loss drugs that were basically a joke. N none of the drugs caused any significant weight loss. I mean, you'd lose, you know, five pounds in a year. Um, who cares? Basically, doctors didn't even hardly prescribe weight loss drugs because they were so depressingly bad. It was almost not worth your time. But all of a sudden now we have these injectable GLP-1 receptor agonists. And what this is, is a satiety hormone that your intestines actually emit when you eat foods with high satiety per calorie. So this is all running off this satiety per calorie system. Basically, the way it works is, let's say you eat a ton of protein and fiber. Let's say you eat uh, 10 pounds of skinless chicken breast and asparagus or something. It's going to take you eight hours to digest that. And this giant amount of food is going to slowly traverse the lower part of your small intestine and mechanically distend it. And your intestine emits this GLP-1 and tells your brain, do not eat anything else because it's going to take us all day to digest this. You are full. You're done eating. And you just feel really full. And what happens is if you eat just refined carbs and refined fats, if I eat a donut, it's broken down and digested in like the first one foot of my small intestine, right past the stomach, uh, just gone. You have no mechanical bulk or there's no water, there's no fiber, there's no protein, and it's just digested immediately. And you have almost no signaling of this GLP-1 when you eat refined carbs and refined fats. So what, this, what these drugs do, they've literally isolated this molecule and you inject it into yourself and you feel like you just ate a steak and a salad an hour ago all day long and you're just super not hungry. And these drugs are extremely popular. The most popular one right now is semaglutide. That is uh, Ozempic uh, is the brand for diabetes and Wegovy is the brand for obesity, but they're both semaglutide. Um, you've also got Munjaro now, Trisepatide, which is FDA approved for um, diabetes so far, probably obesity in the future. Uh, and these drugs are spectacular. To be honest, I do absolutely love them. They are extremely effective. They're usually fairly well tolerated. The biggest downside right now is they're all brand name only, and they're all about a thousand dollars a month or more. And frequently, insurance will not pay for them. They're just shockingly expensive. Now, could you achieve the same result by just having a diet plan where an hour before each meal you just ate a couple pounds of skinless chicken breast and asparagus? Uh, yep, you could actually do that, and that would work, and it would be cheaper. But the drugs are great. You know, what's interesting for the people that it is, or people that could afford it, or people, some people it is covered. Uh, when it's compounded, a lot of the compounding doctors add B12 injection and L-carnitine. And have you seen that? And and you feel that when they add the L-carnitine to help burn some extra fat, that it works even better? Uh, to be honest, I don't have very much um, experience with anyone taking any 
compounded GLP-1 receptor agonist drugs, and I'm really questioning the the uh, validity of most of them for sale because I think there's a lot of basically fake compounded quote unquote GLP-1 drugs out there. So I don't really trust those at all. And uh, I, ha I don't have a lot of experience with them, however. And I, I have a question and this, uh, I don't know if there's an easy answer to it, but like Genuvia is a DPP4 and uh, inhibitor. So it increases the incretins, the GLP-1, it makes it hang around longer. Why doesn't it work as good for weight loss as taking the injection, uh, even though they're kind of both doing the same thing? Right. So this was just like a really weak attempt to get the same effect. If you just uh, didn't break down the GLP-1 as fast, maybe you'd you know, have some weight loss there. And it does kind of work, but most people just aren't eating the right foods to stimulate this effect to begin with. And then taking the Genevia isn't going to do you much good. Um, even uh, optimally, though, however, that drug just wasn't as good as we thought it was going to be on paper. Like on paper, it sounds cool, but the reality just didn't really live up. So I, I, I haven't had patients be nearly as successful with this older um, class of drug. And there's an oral uh, medication, Rabelis, you know, an oral Ozempic type drug. Have you had any experience with that? And if you have, how does that work? Right, right. So ribelstis is an oral form of semaglutide, uh, and you do take this pill first thing in the morning on an empty stomach, and some of it does survive the digestion process, and it's basically hard to get the semaglutide into your body without your GI tract destroying it when you swallow it. Um, the ribelstis is just plain and simple, not as good as the injectables. The injectables are more powerful mostly because it's just hard to deliver this molecule intact um, after it traverses your GI tract. So ribelstis does work, uh, honestly, not as good as the injectables, a little bit more GI side effects in my uh, patient experience. But um, it is cool that it's possible to make an oral GLP-1 receptor agonist, and I expect a lot more of these in the future. And what kind of side effects have you seen? You know, I've heard, you know, I'm an eye doctor with patients, so you know, I'm curious, I'll talk to patients. I hear a lot of heartburn, but that's mainly the main one I hear. What kind of side effects have you seen from someone that, you know, as an internist? Right, uh, nausea is the number one side effect by a mile. So the big problem from these is nausea. And that's why we titrate everyone up very slowly. You wanna start at the lowest dose and slowly ramp your way up to the highest dose. If you just dump someone on a maximum dose, uh, semaglutide, frequently they'll have a lot of nausea. You're so not hungry that you're kind of lightly nauseated. Um, also, like you said, acid reflux, it tends to paralyze your stomach and GI tract a little bit. So constipation, acid reflux, nausea, anything you get if there was food just sitting in your stomach for a long time, because that's kind of the way you feel. So for the people that are getting acid reflux, what do you think is the best way to manage that? Well, I'll usually just start at a, the lowest dose I can and ramp it up very slowly. And to be honest, most people can tolerate it if they just do a very slow ramp up. If, if you do have out of control acid reflux from it, you could add in an acid blocker, either an H2 blocker like famotidine or Pepsid or a proton pump inhibitor like omeprazole or Prilosec. Um, so those are options to add on as well. 
I mean, the one concern I have is that people are on these long-term, you know, I don't know how difficult it was to get off these type of medications. Maybe you have a feel for it. I don't know if anyone knows, but if they're on acid blockers for a long term because they're having heartburn, are they not getting the nutrients they need and putting themselves at risk for other types of problems? Yeah, that's true. I mean, anyone on a proton pump inhibitor for years is probably not going to absorb as much calcium. For example, we do see more osteoporosis downstream of long-term PPI use, proton pump inhibitor, acid blocking use. Um, so that is a concern. I can tell you from the studies on semaglutide that people lost about 16% of their body weight in, a, uh, I believe, one year. And when the drug was discontinued, you did see a slow, gradual regain of about half of the weight loss over the next two years. So you will, if you don't change diet and exercise at all, you will regain probably half of all the weight you lost in a slow, gradual fashion. It is good to know that people don't like rebound and overshoot or are worse than they were before. So you still have a lasting benefit from the drug. But if you don't change diet and exercise at all, uh, the drug is designed to be taken long-term indefinitely, and when you stop it, you will have some regain, you know, at least halfway back to where you were before, on average. You know, switching to uh, labs and blood tests, as an internist, I know you do labs. What's your, what's your favorite lab? Is it triglycerides or cholesterol? I mean, I know it's maybe hard to pick, but what do you think is 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 more important? I mean, I, for a metabolic perspective, I, I'm surrounded by patients with metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, they're overfat, they have high triglycerides, low HDL, prediabetes, diabetes, um, all of this insulin resistance type stuff. And one of my favorite blood tests is fasting triglycerides. If you get a good fasting triglyceride level in the morning, when you haven't eaten any calories, nine to 12 hours, no coffee, no caffeine, no calories, um, just water, uh, this is a really good test. It tells you um, basically how over fat you are. If your fat cells are all full, they don't want triglycerides. And triglyceride is just fat energy that will circulate in the bloodstream until some cell takes it up. And if you're very lean, your cells suck all the triglycerides up and your fasting triglycerides will be low. But if you're over fat, uh, the fat cells don't want it and your triglycerides are really high. Uh, ideally, you want your triglycerides to be under 100 milligrams per deciliter in a fasting state. So that's one of my favorite tests for metabolic health. And we were talking about labs and you know what to expect when you go in to get labs. We talked a little bit about triglycerides. And how important is cholesterol? And do you think it needs to be fractionated? And do we need all these fancy lab tests, these designer lab tests? <laughs> and so, you know, I've had a lot of functional medicine training with tons and tons of advanced labs and all this sort of thing. But I basically realized that a lot of this advanced testing is not that helpful. And 90% of my patients are just over fat and under muscled and no matter what these fancy tests tell them, I'm usually telling them the same advice, you know, improve your diet, lose weight, you need a higher muscle, less fat. And that's almost everybody who walks in the door. So, you know, I've been backing away from a lot of fancy weird tests. They're just not that helpful. Um, I, like I said, I do like fasting triglycerides. I am doing a hemoglobin A1C on 
everyone these days, since 52% of adult Americans are pre-diabetic or diabetic, which is a complete disaster. So glycohemoglobin A1C, or a three-month glucose average, is important. I do like fasting lipids, and I am paying a lot of attention to triglycerides. Um, total cholesterol is less you, helpful. Let me interrupt you for one second. With A1C, what, what, what number are you looking for? Are you looking for under five, or is that is is that a little bit, you know, too hard to expect? And then sometimes with people, their red blood cells hang around too long. Sometimes their A1C will be artificially higher. Or maybe if they have an, maybe they have a folate or iron deficiency or B12 deficiency, we might see the A1C falls high. But how do you look at it? Right, right. So the normal range for A1C is 4.0 to 5.6 with prediabetes at 5.7 to 6.4, and if you're a 6.5 or higher, you're diabetic. In this normal range of 4.0 to 5.6, uh, I don't really sweat anybody who's a little higher or a little lower in there for all the reasons you just mentioned. Uh, there are genetic differences in hemoglobin types, and some people will always just ride a little higher and some will be a little lower. Um, so I don't read a lot into the normal range. I really just want to know, are you normal? Are you pre-diabetic? Are you diabetic? Just those three major categories. And uh, those are usually quite um, reasonably accurate. Um, although even those can be skewed by some fringe cases. You know, if someone's an alcoholic, for example, and uh, alcohol displaces glucose out of your bloodstream. So my alcoholics will have an A1C in the three range because half the energy in their bloodstream is alcohol all day long. And uh, so it's, uh, there are some things you just can't really read into A1C. So anywhere in the normal range is good for me. And how about what we mentioned a little bit about the uh, cholesterol? How important is cholesterol? Are we, because of statins, are we overemphasizing cholesterol to so we could give everybody a statin? Or is cholesterol really important, or do we need to fractionate, break it into particle size and particle number? Cholesterol does matter, um, and it's just another risk factor along with uh, glucose status and insulin resistance and body fatness and uh, blood pressure and smoking and family history. And cholesterol is a factor, and there is a fairly linear uh, relationship between uh, ApoB particles, or these sort of bad cholesterol particles in your bloodstream, and your risk for atherosclerosis. However, it's not the biggest driver, in my opinion. Um, diabetes is appears to be about double the risk that just high cholesterol is. So I am more worried about things like smoking, which appears to be a higher risk factor for uh, cardiovascular disease than cholesterol, and diabetes, which appears to be a high risk factor as well. So those are bigger rocks in the jar. But I do think cholesterol is something to look at. And if everything else is exactly the same, lower is better on ApoB. Um, so that usually correlates fairly well with total and LDL cholesterol. So I do like lower numbers, and I am concerned about people who have familial hyperlipidemia, for example, and their cholesterol is extremely high. And how about the liver test? You know, uh, we're looking for fatty liver, ALT, AST. Uh, what number, over 40, over 45, uh, do you start getting nervous? And uh, when somebody who is not a non-alcoholic, who has non-alcohol fatty liver disease, what can they do to make the, to kind of get themselves on the right track? Well, yeah, fatty liver is a massive epidemic. 100% uh, of type 2 diabetics have fatty liver. And now about 
25% of all the ultrasounds or liver imagings we do have fatty liver. And so fatty liver is just a big percentage of people who walk through the door. Um, you can look at ALP and AST, these uh, liver transaminases, and kind of get an idea for how things are looking. And interestingly, I got out of residency, you know, 20-something years ago. And back then, uh, normal AST and ALT were in the 20s. And then they raised it to kind of 30s. And now it's like 45 is the upper limit of normal. So they just keep allowing for more and more people with fatty liver to be quote unquote in the normal range. You really want your AST and ALT to be in the 20s or teens would be better. And then so many of my patients are, you know, 40s or 50s or 60s or 100. And this is fatty liver and it's literally over fatness. What happens is your body first stores fat in your subcutaneous cells on your skin where it's not a problem. But if you run out of storage there, because all your cells have a maximum diameter, then you start storing fat in the visceral area. That's that abdominal fat that's really, really bad. If you're storing fat viscerally, that's because you ran out of safer storage under your skin. Once that's full, you have to shove all this fat into your organs, your liver and your pancreas and all these other places. And so by the time your body's shoving fat in your liver, it's ran out of other places to put it. And you're definitely over fat officially. And uh, so the best way to reverse fatty liver is to just be less fat. And you do that by eating food that has a higher satiety per calorie. So you're eating to fullness, to satiety, but you ate less calories automatically. Um, anything that makes you thinner will improve fatty liver. That could be exercise, that could be dietary quality improvement. Um, anything that makes you eat less calories for any reason. These drugs like semaglutide, the GLP-1 interceptor agonist, and the liver fat's the last to go in and the first to come out. So you can actually reverse fatty liver in just a couple of weeks. I've had patients go on a crash diet um, of any kind and boom, their AST and LT is normal in like two weeks. I mean, you can, that, that's the very first thing you'll reverse when you improve lifestyle changes. So it's actually a very positive thing. I'm like, you know what? You've got a bad case of fatty liver and you could literally cure it in two weeks by just eating, you know, your skinless chicken breast and asparagus three times a day before each meal to get more GLP-1 so you feel full and you automatically eat less or going on some maglutide or both or just doing more cardio or any combination of those. And tell us why fatty liver is bad. Uh, it, it's literally just a sign that you've totally ran out of fat, places to store fat. By the time you have fatty liver, your insulin levels are high all the time because you have energy toxicity. All the fuels in your bloodstream are too high. Your triglycerides, your free fatty acids, probably your blood sugar. Uh, you just have too much energy circulating in your bloodstream because none of your fat cells want it. They're already full and your liver doesn't want it, it's full. And now it's got no place to go. And that's when you get atherosclerosis and all of these diseases of energy toxicity or insulin resistance and, or over fatness. It's basically energy toxicity. You have too many calories in your body, no place for them to go. It starts damaging everything. It damages the mitochondria in your cells, the little energy factories. And you just get a host of horrible chronic diseases from energy toxicity. You know, you always get these patients who are weight loss resistant. Doc, I've done everything. I've exercised. I tried all these diets. I just can't lose weight. What do you think it is? Is it because they haven't exercised enough and they're spending all the time thinking about diet? They're not exercising, but they're telling me they exercise as well. What, what happens? So inevitably, there are two things that aren't happening. Number one, 
inadequate exercise. They're either not doing the right volume of exercise or intensity of exercise. They're basically not burning enough calories with physical activity per day. And then the other one is they're not actually tracking their macros. They have no idea what they're eating. They think they're eating a lot of protein. They think they're eating nutritious foods, but they're not tracking. So they have no clue. And all of those little bites and snacks of like chips and nuts and cheese and things that are high in fat and carbs and um, that don't get tracked are just basically keeping their calorie intake really, really high. Um, and their satiety cal per calorie is lower than they think. So my advice to anyone who feels that their obesity weight loss resistant is to A, track your actual exercise and B, track your actual macros and see what the heck you're eating. Um, it's usually a big uh, eye-opener. Well, hold your thought right there. We're going to hold you over for, to next week, and we're going to continue to talk about diet and exercise and and satiety, really, how you could become more satiated so you eat less. But if people want to find out more about you, Ted, how could they do that? Right. Well, I'm on all the socials at Ted Naaman. I'm on Twitter at Ted Naaman, Instagram at Ted Naaman. Um, I have a YouTube channel, Ted Naaman. You can uh, go to tednaaman.com. Basically, uh, that's where I'm at on all the socials. Well, I want to thank Dr. Ted Naaman for joining me today. He's a wealth of knowledge, not only a very handsome guy, but also a wealth of knowledge in great shape. And uh, make sure you see him on the podcast. This is Dr. Kerry Gelb for Open Your Eyes Radio. Look us up at drkerrygelb.com. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacU Health with Micromicell, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicell technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today.